Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Danielle Paddock is a behavioural science researcher at the Centre for Behavioural Science and Applied Psychology at Sheffield Hallam University. She's a developmental cyberpsychologist with a keen interest in mental health and well-being, with the aim of utilising digital technologies in order to promote positive well-being. Danielle has just finished her PhD in psychology, which explored the role of adolescents' appearance interactions on social media platforms and how these interactions are associated with body image and mental well-being. She has also collaborated on numerous projects that focus on designing and evaluating classroom-based interventions to promote positive well-being, such as body image in the digital age, and working with young people to develop a social media safety charter. Danielle has published research in impactful journals, presented her research at some of the leading conferences in the area of body image and cyber psychology. Welcome, Dr. Paddock. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very excited to speak to a cyber psychologist. It sounds super exciting. And I'm sure lots of people listening, their children are, are interested in careers in cyber psychology. What, what does that job title mean, Danielle? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so cyber psychology is all to do with the psychology behind kind of technology, digitalized behaviors, and it encompasses quite a lot of different things, to be fair. So it encompasses social media, kind of the more kind of cyber security, which isn't really my area. So it's quite broad in its discipline, which is quite exciting. But I think it's it's nice that it's now recognised as a discipline because we are surrounded by digital technology. And it's kind of like a branch of psychology, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a branch of psychology. It's kind of one area, which is kind of interdisciplinary as well. So I would say I'm kind of a developmental cyber psychologist. So looking at how technology is impacting on how teenagers develop and my goodness me, isn't that a topical area? And you've just, you finished your PhD reasonably recently. Tell us what the sort of title of that was and what you were looking at. Yeah, so that was very cyber psychology heavy. It was looking at how teenagers interact about appearance on social media and how those kind of appearance interactions influence teenage body image and mental well-being. Wow, amazing. And we know that appearance concerns are very, very prominent, obviously, during adolescence. I think 52% of 11 to 16-year-olds in the UK back in 2017 reported dissatisfaction with their appearance. And I think I'm aware of the the HSBC study, you know, the Health School Behaviour Survey nationally, looking at, I think there were about three quarters of 15-year-olds thought their body was the wrong shape or size. So this is an area we've been interested in for some time. You've done that research on sort of appearance-based interactions with peers. 
So give us a little bit of what we sort of know about this area. What is the sort of existing research? Yeah, it's a weird area in a way because we don't know a lot in terms of the appearance interaction specifically on social media. So a lot of the previous research in this kind of body image appearance concerns realm has focused on kind of the images that young people are posting to social media and the processes behind that. So the taking of the selfie, the editing of the selfie, then posting. And I've kind of looked at more of the likes rather than the interactions that happen from posting an image. So in terms of the research literature, it's very limited, but that's kind of worrying in my opinion, because I guess young people interact with their friends a lot. They're going through that developmental period where their peers and their friends are really important to them and their opinions are really important. And they're also now got this social media platform where they can interact 24 hours a day. They've got constant access to their friends, to their friends' opinion, to this kind of highly appearance culture. So looking at how those appearance-based, text-based interactions interact with the images is really important. So my research has kind of started to look at that quite broadly, looking at the different interactions on different platforms and has found that it's really prominent, it's really frequent, it's a massive part of young people's lives in terms of appearance interactions, whether that's the compliments, the really positive intended interactions, but also the negative interactions, and then also kind of like humorous appearance interactions that go off online as well. So just just give us some tangible examples. So I'm imagining in my head, listening to you speak about a girl, maybe posting a teenage girl, a picture of herself about to go out on a night out. It's a nice selfie. She's added a filter. Somebody has, you know, posted a little fire image underneath or somebody has said something else about it. So that's the kind of interaction that you're referring to. Or on the other end of the spectrum, somebody said something negative about her body or and you were really analysing that sort of relationship between the image and the dialogue that comes underneath. Yeah, trying to understand how they interpret, how they experience those interactions, what that means to them in terms of their body image, how they overthink those comments as well. And that's kind of what my PhD and my research moving forward is trying to look at and understand. Yeah, so interesting. So presumably your methodology involved a lot of dialogue, focus groups, interviews with those young people themselves. Yeah, I, as a researcher, I would say I am mixed methods. And in my kind of PhD in that research, I used a lot of qualitative focus groups and individual interviews. And I also used kind of a content analysis method where I extracted adolescents Instagram data and actually had those comments to analyze alongside them actually talking me through those comments as well so it was really interesting research amazing and what would you say you know this is such a basic question but what surprised you about what you find that maybe you hadn't considered yeah so I think if I think about my own Instagram use I have 200 300 images on there um, that I can go back and look through. And I expected that young people would have similar type of platforms. Um, but they had only two, three images because they go through a lot of self-curation where they go back and delete images because they don't like them. They haven't got enough comments. They haven't got enough likes. They're not relevant anymore. 
So just the way they use Instagram and how they over-focus on those comments and that feedback was quite surprising to me. And I didn't expect that at all when I think about my own Instagram use. And jumping ahead a little bit, haven't the social media companies edited some sort of function within the site so that the dependency on likes is reduced? Yeah, you can now turn off the number of likes that are shown. So you can still see personally how many likes you receive, but other people can't see how many you've received. That's very interesting. And did your uh, sample group uh, have boys in it as well? Yeah, so that was, again, really surprising to me. So the girls were really willing to take part in me extracting their data. The boys weren't so much, and the ones that uh, were willing to take part, there was only a couple of images that weren't selfies. They didn't have any interactions or comments underneath them. So the way binary boys and girls are using social media, is, I think, is very different as well. And so you've mentioned sort of gender differences in appearance-related interactions. So again, what would you, you've mentioned that's very different. Is there sort of a greater dependency? I mean, I've read about the teenage girl in particular, this problematic use. Is that what you found as well? Yeah, I would say girls are using maybe Instagram more for validation. So posting images, receiving compliments, that giving and receiving compliments is a big thing for girls. For the boys I interviewed, it was a complete different way of using Instagram. It was more for social interaction and any kind of public interaction around appearance had to be humorous. There was Mm -hmm. toxic masculinity that really played a role in adolescent boys' Instagram use, which I think is, is really alarming and something that needs to be addressed. Fascinating, yeah. And what were there any points in the research where you thought where you were really alarmed by what you've just mentioned, sort of the interaction with toxic masculinity narratives or something? But did you think, oh my goodness, you know, this is something we need to do something about, or you had your head in your hands at any point? Yeah, definitely. I think I think we as researchers and as society, we we over focus on girls' experience and that should never be undermined or not looked at. But I think when I was speaking to these young boys and they were saying how men need to be men, they were using phrases like that and how if they were to compliment someone that would be referred to in a negative way and they would be perceived as feminine and that was bad. So this like toxic masculinity for young boys, I think the youngest boy was 13, 12 or 13 in my sample. That's really toxic messaging that's already coming through at such a young age and I think that it was really alarming to me and something that was like yeah this this is something that needs to be worked on within society and it was giving you a real window into sort of culture sort of macro narratives and what else is going on you you had a little glimpse underneath the skin of that didn't you on in those sort of interactions and I know there is a lot of there's research on specific apps and the impact of those apps on body appearance what can you tell us you know as parents as educators that we should be a bit, bit more conscious of in terms of specific apps yeah so I think the big thing that came from my research is that Rather than looking at apps specifically, we should look at the design features that are afforded to adolescents by these apps. So, for instance, Instagram and TikTok, highly visual platforms where young people aren't necessarily posting around text-based things. So they're not posting statuses. They're posting images, videos that are usually of themselves. So that highly visual nature of certain platforms 
is something to be mindful of. The permanency of platforms as well, so how long posts are available. So obviously on Instagram, content is permanent unless it's deleted or unless they're using the story functions. So I think trying to understand the different design features that are afforded to young people on those platforms is really important to then be able to have those conversations with young people in the first place. Yeah. So for example, I could say to my 16 year old, did you know that whatever you post on Instagram is permanent unless you delete it? So we're sort of developing that little bit of that literacy and just to sort of pause there. So if you had teenagers and what sort of questions would you ask them like that to really point the direction in the right area or to get them thinking about the right things and developing that sort of critical literacy? Yeah, I guess it is just raising awareness of kind of those things that maybe they're not aware of in that things are permanent unless they delete them, asking them whether they do know about the different design features on these platforms. So just having those open conversations, so, oh, I, I, I didn't realise that when you post a story, it disappears after 24 hours. So it's it's not like you're prying, but you're kind of having those open conversations and taking an interest, I guess, to open up that conversation in the first place. Now, something I'm dying to ask you, because I was in a school recently and we were talking about your work and the fact I was going to interview you. And some of the teachers and parents said, wouldn't it be good to have some sort of resource that they could use with young people to help them monitor how particular apps make them feel. Mm -hmm. And we started talking about what that might look like. And obviously, as a researcher, you will be aware of, of sort of evaluative tools or things that could help evaluate mood or responses to how something makes us feel. So what's your kind of advice if we were to design something like that? Or is there a pre-existing tool that could be really helpful for schools or parents? Yeah, I think I know someone who might be working on a similar project to that where then they've created an app that can monitor how young people are feeling, depending on whether they've looked at certain content and things like that. So it is an option that is out there. And I think it's about maybe implementing that and then also asking parents and teachers what they would want from it first and also asking the young people what they would want from it first. I think there's a tendency to go in like top-down approach saying this is what is needed this is what we expect without actually talking to young people teachers parents to get their perspective on what they would want from some sort of intervention some sort of app to monitor those things yeah I really like that idea of asking them how how do you want to feel yeah 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 that's really interesting and who's the person developing that work or or working on that app I don't know off the top of my head the names. I, I read so much and so many. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah. But I think I can definitely look into that and find thank you, out thank you. who that is. There's definitely some work going off in that area of app development with computer yep. scientists and psychologists. Fantastic. Okay. And in terms of I'm interested in this concept of sort of controlling the scroll, because we've heard about the way in which they're scrolling through particular social media apps can also potentially impact on how they're feeling. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, that difference between active and passive scrolling. And is that something you looked at as well? Yeah, it's not something I actually looked at in a lot of detail, but I think it's something that came up in the findings in terms of they can sit and aimlessly scroll through certain platforms and not necessarily be taking any and into any consideration what they're looking at. They're just kind of scrolling through as something to do. 
And I think that's interesting to think about. I think we often think time spent on social media is negative. And I don't necessarily think it is. I think it's how young people are spending their time on social media. And we really have to probably move away from that idea of if you're spending four or five hours a day on social media, it's a negative. It might not be a negative. There's loads of positives to social media and we shouldn't forget them. So it's about maybe building those skills on how how people are scrolling and how what kind of content they're looking at. And making sure young people are able to think, wait a minute, this is not making me feel good. And to sort of activate that digital power that they can mute, they can unsubscribe, they can unfollow, that they do have agency in that space. Yeah, that's massive. I think we did a project with York City Council and the NSPCC about social media safety. And that was a huge thing. We we actually talked to young people first before designing the safety charter. And that was what they said, like, we do know how to control these things. We do have this agency making us more aware of these things we can do to control the negative side of social media is what is needed. You're never going to stop young people from using social media. So it's about how can we reduce the risk and maximise the positive benefits they get from social media. And Danielle, is that free, that tool? Yes, that tool is free and it's readily available through York City Council website. Brilliant. I shall be looking that up and signposting it. I also know you were involved in the testing and evaluation of an intervention called Body Talk in the Digital Age, BTIDA. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that was really great to be a part of. I wasn't part of the development of the intervention per se. I was involved in actually delivering it in the classroom, which was really great. And also the evaluation of it and the write-up of the report. So it was really great and it, it tried to build on previous interventions because previous interventions have worked, but they're not necessarily focused on the interactions, the appearance interactions online. So we really wanted to try and bring that into the intervention. And what age group was that aimed for? Like what year group were you working with? It was year eight to year 10. So around age 12 to 13, 14, I think. Was that like a once-off lesson or a series of lessons? Yeah, so one of the issues in previous interventions is that they've been multiple sessions, which is fine, but also is quite difficult sometimes for schools to actually take on board and run due to the many pressures that schools are facing. So we wanted to try and build a session where it was a one-hour session that actually touched upon these issues. So it was just one session and we wanted to see whether that was positive and worked or whether it didn't. And apparently I think it was impactful for girls but not boys, is that correct? Yeah, so it was positive for girls in both the, I think we followed up maybe four weeks after and then we followed up three months later and it was still having a positive effect. But unfortunately we had no positive effects for boys which is really interesting in itself. Fascinating. I mean, you're already making me think about the need for those differentiated approaches, which is extraordinary, really, isn't it? And Danielle, if schools are listening and they really want to, you know, use that intervention, how would they go about that? Yeah, so I think the first thing would be to contact the main author on that or to contact me. I still work collaboratively with the first author. She was my supervisor. So that's Dr. Beth Bell. She's based at University of York. And I do think she's hoping to bring that work back up and running as well. So, Oh, I can think of lots of schools who'll be very interested in that. So we're definitely going to get in touch. 
And I think just, you know, it's hard for pastoral staff, isn't it? And teachers, people delivering PSHE on this to- on these topics. But so that sounds like something they could comfortably use. And so it's been evaluated. It's been it's evidence based. So that's quite exciting. In general, in school cultures, based on what you know, I'm very interested in your view on things like phone use in schools. You know, a lot of children these days have phone access in the classroom. I mean, it's, it's there's a big debate going on about that. Just from your own personal view, what's your feeling about phone use in schools? Or I know every single parent listening to this wants to know if you had a teenager, at what point would you allow that early access or access to social media? So we're, we'll have to ask. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I talk about a lot to my partner and to my parents as well. And I think it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? And I don't think there's any right or wrong answers, if I'm completely honest. I think social media, phone use within schools, it's got to be limited to some extent. We do know phones are sometimes distracting and there's a lot of negatives that can come through with phone use and social media use. But I think limiting it completely is not necessarily the answer either. I think a lot of teenagers just shut down if you try and limit them in any way. I think we really have to try and work with teenagers and kind of try and find a middle ground, which I know is not easy. I think it's about having open conversations about phone use, social media and not having it as a taboo topic. I think phones and social media can sometimes be a taboo topic within schools and for parents and I think it's really about trying to move away from that but I think the first thing is educating teachers and parents I think we just expect teachers and parents to know about phones and social media and there's a lot of lack of understanding around social media and phone use in general from parents and teachers so how can they approach those conversations without the knowledge in the first place And having sort of exploratory conversations, curious conversations, conversations where we're not policing, we're parenting, having an interest. Those are some of the messages that I've taken out of this and not to be afraid to explore and learn and ask your child to teach you things. Those are all things that we can do. And in terms of sort of the critical thinking, which I'm very interested in. So if you see your teenager looking at perfect curated images of, I don't know, one of the Kardashians on social media or Love Island characters or whatever, instead of saying, I don't know why you're looking at that, it's going to make you feel worse about yourself or something. What are the best ways that teachers and parents can develop that sort of literacy just through the type of questioning that they might use? Yeah, I think it's about approaching it in a way of you trying to learn why they are looking at those certain images rather than saying, no, that's going to make you feel bad. They probably know that looking at those images is going to make them feel bad. They're very aware of the negative consequences of these ideal imagery and all these different things on social media. They're very aware of the negative consequences. So I think opening up that conversation asking them maybe why they look at those images, what is it in that image that appeals to them, and asking them about those type of things rather than just telling them that they'll feel negative from looking at those images. Yeah, and also leaning into the fact that, I mean, my own 16-year-old loves looking at weightlifters and you know people who are bulked up, as he says, on social media, but my job isn't to criticise that. My job is to explore what is appealing about those images for him you know, but also having a conversation about obsession, obsessive exercise, having a balance, making sure he understands the difference between reality and what's fake. And, you know, so I was asking him questions like, I wonder how many hours in the gym that person spent. 
sports. And that's sort of their career as opposed to you're a schoolboy. So you couldn't possibly spend. So just gently kind of nudging and sort of probing a little bit is what you're suggesting. Absolutely. And I think that's what we tried to do in the intervention, the classroom based intervention as well. Appearance ideals and all these things, these influences, it is an illusion. So there is money, there's filters, there's a lot behind these things. And so, yeah, having those inquired conversations, just just a chilled conversation as well, not having like it as an interrogation, I think is really important. And I think a lot of teenagers would appreciate that as well. Danielle, in a lot of the research, we look at the age band of sort of 10 to 12, 11 to 13 for girls seems to be a very delicate, vulnerable age band. And it seems to me from reading the research that early access to social media can be quite problematic for many reasons, in addition to appearance anxieties, but also in terms of safety online. Is that something that you'd be sensitive to from your research as well? Absolutely. I think it's a crucial age for girls and boys in terms of their development. It's where they become a lot more aware of their bodies, of their cognitive development as well. So they're able to think about thinking, metacognitive abilities. So there's a lot going on in terms of their development, which makes them more hyper aware of these things. So if they've got access to social media at the ages, as we know, from working in schools and other institutions there's children as young as six or seven that are on Instagram which is highly problematic not only are they at risk from grooming from really dangerous interactions they're also exposed to this world where we think that influencers have a normal life and that's what we should aspire to and that's really problematic for a lot of young people as they're then going into that period of developmental change as well. I mean, it's mind boggling to think there are six-year-olds online. I mean, that's really, really shocking. I know the Children's Commissioner a few years ago was identifying eight-year-olds were online and feeling bad about how they looked as well. So it's like incredibly, I think stigmatizing early access is something we could all do as a sort of society. Lastly, is there anything, we've mentioned this issue with boys, is there anything that you know that's going on, any particular researchers looking at boys' body image and social media interaction that we could perhaps connect to? Yeah, so... Dr. Zali Yeager, I think she's based in Australia, so obviously slight differences to the UK. She does a lot of work trying to develop gender-specific interventions, really trying to focus in on how young boys experience these appearance interactions, these appearance ideals, how they experience them differently to young girls. So she's doing a lot of work in trying to develop them and test those evidence-based evaluations to see whether they are effective for boys, whether it needs to be gender-specific or co-educational as well. Is there any explanation from what you know about why these differences are so apparent? Yeah, I think there's a real issue within society in terms of these binary gender stereotypes that are portrayed within the media within every aspect of life really and although there is more awareness of gender diversity and gender not being a binary concept we still grow up surrounded by those ideas that gender is binary and there's certain things that make a woman a woman and a man a man and that comes through within appearance as well so 
for men, they want to be muscly, they want to be toned, they've got to have smooth skin, tall. For a woman, they've got to be thin but curvy, they've got to have big lips, smooth skin, long hair. And these are very gendered. There's very clear differences between how a woman should look and a man should look. And they come through within messages portrayed within society. What would you say, often I receive sort of interest in the research around gender identity. So mm-hmm. parents might say, well, where's the evidence that that sort of gender diversity is is not a politically motivated sort of idea, that there is actual research evidence around that sort of non-binary gender, if that makes sense. What would you say to that? I would say that gender diversity is is a huge thing that's under-researched in terms of a lot of the literature in young people. But there's biological and cognitive support that transgender, non-gender, binary genders, non-binary genders, they are a huge issue that adolescents face. Gender is not binary. It's not a binary concept. People can experience gender on a spectrum. And I think it's really important to try and educate people around that. I think it's really about a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding around gender diversity. And I also think it's an issue within research as well. Researchers focus on girls and boys and just that's it. And my research is something body image research, social media research needs to move into looking at gender diversity as an issue and trying to understand that for those young people as well. And just last question, about: are there any specific researchers looking at that already or is this completely unexplored ground? I think within the body image and social media literature, it's very under-researched and off the top of my head, I can't think of someone who's really looking into this. There probably is. I think other areas of psychology are definitely having more people research this. So eating disorder research is quite good at moving into that direction and understanding how non-binary genders experience eating disorders. That's right. And there's a lot of research on gender dysphoria in autistic teenagers. Dr. Kate Cooper is doing a lot of that work in the UK. So it's very interesting, isn't it, that sort of emerging areas of research. Absolutely. And I think because body image literature is is underpinned by these theories that are quite gendered in terms of girls feeling this way, looking this way, boys looking a certain way. I think there's a tendency to just overfocus on that within all research in this area. But I think there's a real need to push past that because there is a little bit of research showing that how, for example, transgender youth and those youth experiencing gender dysphoria, they're having real issues with their body image because of various reasons so understanding that and understanding how they use social media is really crucial to understanding this in a holistic view you know that point that you make about how contested even within the research community this stuff is you know is it's mind-boggling as it's very very hard to work out what's going on or you know there seems to be such a political context as well it's hard for researchers to kind of you know move into these areas Yeah, absolutely. And without that research, without that lack of understanding, we can't then educate parents, teachers, other young people about these experiences and how to actually talk to people about these topics. So without that, we really are falling behind. But you're right, it's it's situated within a huge political debate, which it does cause issues as well. So Danielle, what are you working on now? What's exciting you? What are you doing? Yeah, so 
obviously just finished the PhD, which is great, but I'm now thinking about how I can move on some of those findings. So there's huge, huge scope to develop interventions around these appearance interactions for young boys, but also exploring those appearance interactions and social media use in those gender diverse groups as well. So I'm kind of putting together funding bids and project ideas for those. And then, of course, in my role as a researcher at Sheffield Hallam University, I do a lot of contract research. So lots of exciting projects going on there that aren't in the realm of body image and social media, but still learning a lot about young people and family relationships and things like that. So lots going on. <laughs> lots going on. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations on your PhD. And it all sounds amazing. And we're going to keep up to date with what you're doing um, as things progress. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.